I'm Jess Fisher, and this is the best paper I ever wrote. Hello! Today is February 6th. Tomorrow is the Super Bowl. Are you excited for the Super Bowl? I am not as excited as I normally am. Now, I don't Why? I don't normally do anything for the Super Bowl. Like, that's not... I don't like Super Bowl parties. I don't like watch parties for things because when I'm watching something, you? when I'm watching something, I'm watching something. I'm mm. there to like, like it's it's an annoying character trait of mine, but like I <laughs> spent thousands of dollars to go to school to learn how to view things with a critical eye and appreciate them on a certain yeah. level. And it's very difficult to do that when... You're, you are really sounding like a film guy right exactly, now. Exactly. And it's very annoying. <laughs> And I recognize this. And there are some things that I like to watch with people. Like, I love the communal experience of going to the movies. I love the communal yeah, yeah. experience of, like, watching, a, a like, a, you know, a blockbuster movie. But, like, I just watched Malcolm and Marie last night. And I loved it. But if mm. I had tried to watch that with, like, three other people, I feel like it would have been ruined. And that, I feel the same way about the Super Bowl. Because, like... Really? You want to watch a Super Bowl alone? Not that I want to watch it alone. If I even want to watch it. I like football. I like the Giants. Uh-huh. Um, I only really am invested in football when the Giants are playing. Otherwise, like, like I haven't watched any other playoff games this year. I haven't been, because I don't care. It's not like baseball where I'll watch, like, every playoff game because I really just enjoy the sport. Football is one where I'm just like, I like my team and the Super Bowl That's is so an funny. event, so I'll watch I it. I feel probably the opposite. I, like, can't watch baseball at all. It bores me. Um, but I could, I could, I could watch a football game. Um, like, I grew up going to Rutgers games. And, uh, I, I didn't watch very many of the playoffs, but I'm living with two, um, Seahawks fans. So there's Seahawks shit everywhere. And so when the, when the C, when the Hawks are playing, I'm watching. Um. Yeah. I, I find college football <laughs> inherently more exciting and more Why? interesting. Well, I think they have some rules in play that just like the pace of play is quicker. Uh, That's so. Fair. Like, the game isn't, like, stopping for penalties and timeouts as often. Um, And also, the kids have more to play for. Like, they're playing for a career, you know? They're playing for their jobs in the future. In the NFL, not to say these people aren't, like, high-class athletes that do things my body could never even dream of doing. (laughs) But, like, I just think there's a certain beauty to, like, young kids who know that, like, if they fail, they may never play this game again at a professional level, you know? And I think there's the stakes of it are a lot more exciting to me for that level. The fans That's are more funny. engaged. It's like it's like the more of a story for you. That's yeah, funny. it is because football is it's it's such a dumb sport. Like <laughs> there's t- there's too much. It's like basketball in my eyes. Basketball is on a surface level very simple. You run back and forth, put ball in hoop. Football, <laughs> go back and forth across field, get ball in end zone, kick ball through field goal post. But there is strategy to it that unless you are super into it, you'll never understand. Like, oh, they have five defensive backs set and they're two out wide, but that means that this guy's covering this, but they're in yeah, man coverage, not zone that. coverage. And I'm but like, I can, yeah, I can watch it though. I can watch it too, but I just think like baseball, the strategy of it is not simpler because it's still deep. But for me, the thing of baseball is the strategy isn't so in the moment. Baseball Mm. is more of a turn-based strategy game as opposed to the real-time strategy (laughs) of football and basketball, to put it in video game terms. Um, I don't know. I do like football. I played football in high school for a year. Wait, you did? My freshman year. I didn't do the fall play. I did... Wait, seriously? Yeah, I did freshman football. What was the fall play that you didn't do? 12 Angry Jurors. I didn't miss much. (laughs) I had... You were on the Monmouth Regional football team. The Monmouth Regional freshman football team. No way. Mm-hmm. I played flag football for a year also. But again, it's one of those things where it's just like, it was the, I did it because it was the thing to do. I like football because sure. my dad liked football. or My dad likes football and we would watch the games together, but I don't live with my dad anymore. So I don't watch the games every Sunday because yeah. I, there are things. That's the thing. It's not that I don't enjoy watching football. It's that... There are things that I enjoy more than watching football, unless it's my team. Whereas other sports like baseball or even college football, I could just turn on a game and find the drama in it and find it exciting. Hmm. But like without having something to root for, having something invested in it. Now, I'll bet on the Super Bowl. That's something I like to do. I'll like mm-hmm. put it, you know, take all right, 50 bucks for uh, I just won't buy two meals out this week and it'll. Yeah. <laughs> and that'll make up for that. And 
I think that gets me more invested in the Super Bowl. But it's mostly because everyone's watching and I know if I don't watch, I'll be out of the loop. That's what it's more about for me. I was going to say something that I do like about the Super Bowl is like the the uh, collectivism of it that like we can all talk about it after and like pretty much anybody you could talk to about and if not the Super Bowl itself, then the commercials. And like, I also work in marketing, so like, the commercials are actually pretty exciting for yeah. me. Yeah, and that's another reason why watching it with people is so annoying. Because usually, when you're watching something with people, the commercials are your break to talk and catch up and hang out. Yeah, but yeah, with the Super Bowl, Super sometimes Bowl, it's like I'd rather you do talk during watch. the game so I can watch the commercials. And then right. there's people who get like aggressive about the halftime show. Like, they'll be like, if anyone talks during Lady Gaga, I'll slit your throat. <laughs> That's the same reason I like going to the movies by myself, too. Because... Right. I remember that about you. The intent of watching something... And it's not to say, I'll text my friends, be like, oh my god, let's go see this movie. Especially right. when we can go to movies again after this. I'll be like, are there Dear no god, Are there no drive-ins in Jersey right now? There are drive-ins north. in Phoenix. I went to a okay. couple around... Like, over the summer, places did, like, pop-ups, like, in the Raceway and all these different places. I, I did a couple, but they're not, like, legit. So it's, I bought mm. an AM radio at Best Buy for 20 bucks, and I was like, okay. Yeah, and also it's like... It's a lot of the the non-legit ones. It's actually hard to see the screen and it's not as well organized. When it's like an actual drive-in, then it's like it you're actually going to the movies. Yeah, the, the um, only... Is there still a lot of snow there right now uh, in Jersey? There is still about, on the ground where I am, there's about a foot still. No way. Maybe a little less because it's melted and we're supposed to get another two to three inches tomorrow. No way. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Do you want to know what I was just doing a half hour ago? Sunbathing? Yeah. Sitting by a pool? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I thought. That's right. Is this a a PG podcast? What? No. Oh, you fucking bitch. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Is this a PG podcast? Fuck no. You think I'd have a PG podcast? No. All right. (laughs) All right. um, Let's see what's on my script. Um, This week's paper is the best elevator pitch essay that this show has ever seen. Uh, we're going to be looking at the WWE through a postmodernist lens. I am joined today by a longtime friend of mine. Why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, hi, Jess. Uh, longtime listener, first time <laughs> caller. Uh, name's Nick D'Ambrosia. I am a uh, filmmaker, screenwriter, director, performer, all around entertainment enthusiast You're a from Central too. Jersey. I am a podcaster, that's true. I feel like I always forget to include that Me because it is a legitimate hobby and career now for many. Uh, but yes, I am a podcaster. Would you like to pitch well. your podcast? Oh, I thought we'll just jump right into the plugs. Yes. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't, I don't like to leave those at the end because maybe sometimes people tune out. Plug yeah, your you're podcast. Right. Well, I'm going to plug my podcast right now. Hey, do you like <laughs> theme parks? Do you like theme parks a lot? Do you like theme parks so much that you already know everything there is to know about the history of rides and all the defunct rides and all the rides that never got built? And instead, you want to hear a couple of white dudes ramble about the uh, ethical implications of Toy Story Land and what it means when you get shrunk down to the size of a toy and whether or not the toys are providing Andy with a cut of the profits they're making from monetizing his backyard? Or do you want to hear about (laughs) other rides we should put the Joe Biden animatronic in instead of the Hall of Presidents? (laughs) Then check out the Sea Ticket podcast, now available wherever pods are cast. Uh, It's not the best theme park podcast, but it's probably someone's favorite. That's our motto. (laughs) And you can tell I've rehearsed it. Yeah. Wow. Um, Wow. Two white guys talking about some stuff. That's pretty revolutionary, Nick. Two white guys who, get this, did improv. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, no, it's me and my buddy James. This is a new market. uh, no, James actually used to work at Disney. James did the Disney College program, and he was oh, a skipper really? on the Jungle Cruise. So you know he's legit funny. Uh, yeah, wow, that's not an he easy. Also, yeah, he, he also worked entertainment on Disney Cruise Lines, and uh, he was, uh, as they say in the biz, very good friends with Hawkeye and some other uh, Avengers and characters. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Wow. So you you just started this one. You you have one episode out. Yeah, as of this recording, we have one episode released, and is it weekly? Uh, we ha- yeah, every Monday. Every Monday we're dropping new episodes for those of us who are commuting. Uh, 9 a.m. Eastern. So That's uh, funny. We're 6 a.m. for you West Coasters. Oh, I, I mean, I just set it to 9 a.m. Eastern for the first episode because uh, we knew it was going to be uh, 
a foot and a half of snow on the ground and nobody was going to be out of their house. So um, we've been debating moving up our release for commuters, but we don't know if anyone's commuting and listening to podcasts right right now. That's why we release at 5 a.m. too, because of the theoretical commuters that, you know, there aren't aren't commuters right now. Yeah. So that's our thing. Mondays, hey, you had a rough weekend, going to get on your way to work on Monday morning and hey, let's pop on uh, C-Ticket Podcast, and then you can tweet along at C-Ticket Pod. Uh, Our first episode was about character meet and greets, so James just roasted old pictures of me from like 20 years ago in Disney World. (laughs) It was great. Would you consider yourself a Disney adult? I am absolutely a Disney adult. Um, (laughs) And I think there is... No, and this is one thing that I actually, to to kind of get back on track, this is one thing that I never got to write a paper about that Mm -hmm. I have so many thoughts on. Because it's just another fandom. There are so many fandoms out there. And why is there this one that just like, okay, so we're actually investing in something that is real and tangible that you can go to and visit. As opposed to, oh, I love The Bachelor and I have to watch The Bachelor every week. No shame to my bachelors and bachelor stands out there. <laughs> uh, I get it. I've watched it. Believe me, I understand. Yeah, but it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the thing where it's like, okay, you like this fictional thing or this 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 to get it down to our postmodernism conversation, this simulated reality, it's just another simulated reality. Disney is inherently postmodern. It's it's a, another type of storytelling that gets to this core you mean, base you mean level. The Disney parks is Disney parks, yes, 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 yes. Disney parks are inherently postmodern in the sense that they're they have these reflexive references to other material and other media that you have an attachment to, and that's what gets you there. And then they hook you with all these other things to keep you there. And I think, bring it into WWE already, Mm -hmm. we haven't gotten even into the paper yet, but it's the same idea of it's creating a false reality where you as the consumer of this media are separating yourself for some period of time from the reality that you know and accepting and buying into this reality. It's the people who would never buy into that reality because they think it's lame or not cool or they think it makes them weak or not manly or strong, that (laughs) those are the people who use, like, Disney adult TM as, like, an insult. Uh And it's those are the people who are just, like, would go and even if they are having fun, would pretend they aren't. Yeah, yeah. That's really funny that you said that because um, I've always thought of, like, connecting back to last week's episode about immersive theater, like, I I recently came to terms with the fact that uh, Disney parks are in many ways immersive theater. And when you talk about postmodernism and the role you play and all those things and the relationship with reality, um, like, when I was looking up for this uh, research, I was looking up different famous postmodern plays and... Sleep No More was on there. And I was like, oh, is is immersive theater inherently postmodern? I don't know. But anyway. Anything that is bringing, anything that is bringing the viewer fit, like into that world and, and giving them an opportunity to not necessarily affect the story, but project the story onto themselves is inherently postmodern, in my opinion. That's my huh. reading of it. Um, yeah, but Disney Parks... Their employees are called cast members. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And the the behind the scenes area is called backstage. And when you are anywhere that guests can see you, you are on stage. It is, they designed it like a play. They designed it like theater. Because they know that's an emotional hook for people is when you present it as a story, as an experience. I believe me, I have drafted so many video essays that I just haven't had the time to make about how (laughs) Disney rides follow perfect three act structure how oh um, that's so cool oh my god and and it's not even the ones that people would think like literally just roller coasters just from the moment you you see what they're like hooking you in with you walk turn that corner you see mount everest and you are now drawn in the story has begun oh what's that inciting incident i need to get on there oh as you're in the queue line oh what's all this noise this nonsense about oh the yeti there's a yeti out there oh oh no this this train this party of people never came back okay we're getting on the train now boom break into act two it's it's everything <laughs> Boom, they do, two. the Imagineers down to the the um, front facing cast members are all part of telling this broad story. And I just think that, again, to bring it back to postmodernism, mm-hmm. that that really hits on the idea of um, reflexivity. And I'll get into that in a little bit. But yeah, the, yeah, the I, I do want to um, reverse the car for a minute. 
um, because I do want to l- have the listeners figure out a little bit more about who's talking, you know. Yeah. So first off, how did we meet, you and I? Because so, we clearly have a banter. Yeah, we got <laughs> we got a good rapport. Uh, we met, was it 2012, 2011? Uh, one of those, whatever year Greece was. We're, we're going on a decade. Um, I think it's 2011, so I think we're, this summer we'll be at a decade. Yeah, we're, we're pushing a decade. Uh, and <laughs> you were in a production of Greece. Was it even Greece Junior, or were you just doing Greece? No, we um, were just doing Greece. Yeah, you were just doing Greece at 12, 13 years old. Yep. Um, Are you having know. your friend, your period? Yeah, the pregnancy was in that play. It was yeah. Greece. Uh, and I was, um, <laughs> I wasn't officially working there yet for the camp. No, you were, we were doing you were it. stagehand. Yeah, it was stage crew, and they hired me the next year to yeah. to work. Um, and we but, eventually, yeah. um, we eventually directed uh, the Lion King Junior together yeah. a few years later. Our but, journey, our journey culminated in uh, in directing uh, a full production, which is kind of insane to think that we started as just like. I'm a stagehand and an actress. And then you went to college and you went to art school. And then I went to film school and we came back and we're like, we are auteurs. We are all just, and we will direct to your children. And I, I, you know, I was, I was pretty proud of the Lion King Jr. I, I think we, I think we did a great job with that. Me too. Um, what was I going to say? So where did you grow up? You, you said you're from central Jersey and you still live in central Jersey. Dirty jurors, baby. Dirty, Dirty jurors. I'm here for um, now. Here for now. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's see. Are cheap. you planning on le- living? Where else are you planning on living? Uh, that sounded like leading. I am planning on leaving. No, uh, LA. <laughs> I'd love to get out to LA. Well, I also love the I'll Orlando be there soon, area. and so is Luke. So I know. Gang's all there. They'll have some fun. friends. The gang's all, the gang's all here. <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, yeah, I love LA. I would like to one day retire to Orlando and just go to Disney every day. Mm. But um, they also have a pretty good art scene. Yeah, they have a pretty good art scene down there in Orlando Mm -hmm. now, too, coming up. Um, And I think that's exciting. A lot of little improv and comedy hotspots popping up down there, which is nice. Because I I also think about how how many people move there to work at Disney, at Universal, at SeaWorld, Mm. at Legoland. How many performers are down there that need an outlet outside of work? It only makes sense that it's becoming a kind of a new arts hub. That's cool. I never thought of that. So where did you go to school and what did you study at school? You said you studied film? Yes. Well, I went to Ramapo College of New Jersey and I received my degree in communication arts with a concentration in digital filmmaking. But That's so funny. That's the long version. So I thought you studied theater in in addition to. So I got a minor in theater. Okay. Okay. my degree, it's it's the closest thing they have to a film degree. So I just say I'm a film major. That's what we we all just said. But it's technically within the communication arts school, uh, the concentration in digital filmmaking. So we covered all the bases. We covered, you know, everything we needed to know. So how did you get into postmodernism? I took a class my junior year, junior year, I think, yeah, my junior year called the New TV Criticism, New TV Crit, we called it. Uh, and hmm. it is the best uh, academic class I've ever taken. Uh, I say academic in the sense of not like a production class or a workshop sure. class. Um, uh, as far as like you are coming to class and we are learning about a thing. It is hands down the best class I've ever taken. It's fascinating. We would like, I think it was a three hour. Yeah, I think it was a three hour. Or no, it was twice a week, hour and a half. Uh, what we'd usually do is half the class, we'd watch an episode. Then we'd talk about it. And then the second day of the week we would discuss all right what are the concepts that relate back to this episode and why we watched it uh we would watch um uh what did we watch in that class we did it, it and it changes the curriculum all the time so she's constantly adding new shows and stuff and like we're always sending her new shows like oh my you have to check this out and put it in the class oh cool we love the yeah, i sent her um we were talking i was just talking to her about wandavision the other day and i, I was just thinking that uh, I, yeah. I have I, without spoiling it I, I have some stuff on wandavision later but um I've yeah. only seen the first episode, so I don't know, buddy. I, I might not be literally. Able to... It won't be a spoiler. It's just okay. the, the the conceit <laughs> of it is is about postmodernism. But oh, yeah, okay. it's an incredible, incredible class, and I still like most of my critical eye came from that class. You, no matter how many other criticism courses I took, I looked at everything through the lenses that I gained in that class. Do you prefer uh, postmodernist theater to any other type? See, theater is different for me because... Because, like, you were in Mr. Burns, and I would absolutely argue that that's postmodernist. I agree. And that is one of my favorite plays right. that I've ever read or seen or been in. Um, 
I, I got think to see it, Nick in that, and he was wonderful. Thank you. Truly, You're it welcome. depends, is the answer. Um, if there's a reason for it. I think there is a lot of... There's a trend in the theater community. Like what? To make things... Not everything needs to be the Great Comet. Not but everything... Great Comet is wonderful. Exactly. Because they okay. designed it from the bottom up with that in mind. I don't want to see... And I didn't see this production, and I really wanted to see this production. But I don't think we needed Sweeney Todd in a pie shop where the audience okay. is on the stage. You know, sure. I don't think that's something that we necessarily needed. But I, I haven't seen it, and I didn't get to see it, so I can't say whether or not it added anything we do to the, the Lion text. King in a desert. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We didn't need. That, and I'm glad it turns out that that guy's the fucking MAGA psycho now. The guy who did what Serenby Playhouse or whatever that landed the helicopter for Miss Saigon. Oh, um, and yeah. it's like great, great. There, we landed a helicopter. Yeah. Okay, sure. Uh, or they they sunk, or they they had a real ship for the Little Mermaid, or they sunk the Titanic. But I don't know. It was. I don't think we need that. And again, I, that production of Sweeney Todd, for all I know, it did add a lot to the text, and it did have a lot to say about the themes. But my understanding that the people of I know that I know who saw it came back and said, oh, man, it was just really cool that Norm Lewis was screaming in my face. And I'm like, OK, <laughs> but why was Norm Lewis screaming in your face? Um, you know, I ask that because yeah. remember, uh, did you ever watch the South Park um, episode about WWE and how they go and they're like, hmm, let's see how he performs. In this the is not act. wrestling. Yes. It's, yeah. It's and so they've good. got they've got the little um, monocles or, or uh, opera goggles and yes. things like that. There's so many um, great wrestling TV episodes. Always Sunny has a great one. Gang wrestles for the troops. Top notch TV episode. <laughs> I actually do know which one you're talking about. <laughs> Um, let me see. So when did you, uh, as long as I've known you, you've been a WWE fan. Yes. Um, I was first introduced to wrestling through video games. Uh, okay. Yeah. And I just what, thought, what age are we talking? It's 2007. So I was 12 it was the first, okay. the first game I played was SmackDown vs. Raw 2007. Um, and then I didn't start watching it really until like 2008 when I just happened to turn on the TV and like, oh, there's Friday Night Smackdown. Okay, cool. Uh, and then I just started watching it, recording it. I would DVR it at my dad's every week. My parents are divorced, so I went there on the weekends. And my, and my mom hated it. Like, she would, like, get mad <laughs> if I was watching it in the house. She called, And I get into this, like, a little bit about the um, the the public image of wrestling in the paper. Mm. But, like, she was like, oh, it's white trash. It's garbage. And I'm like, it's, it's no different than any other entertainment on television. Just yeah. because you have this outdated view of who watches it like it's think times have changed boomer um <laughs> so mom <laughs> yeah that's, that's that kind sounds of thing. also so divorce kid like um that's so like yeah i would only record wwde at my at my dad's house every other weekend like that's so i'm also a child of divorce <laughs> like, yeah you get it it's like you have certain things that are just like you associate with one parent or the other and for me it was like oh yep. my dad would oh what are you watching oh i'll sit here and watch with you for a little bit he got kind of into it not as into it as i was but he would take me to events he would take me to shows we've been oh, to wrestlemania so nice. together yeah it was it's was, it a good time um yeah it's 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 fun i i fell in love with it kind of because of it is theater in its purest form i think okay it, it, it it's primarily improvised i mean there's planned endings planned moments but for the most part people are out there in front of a crowd of thousands making up a story so with when only you say where they have to you go mean physical physical oh yeah improvisation? oh yeah really? when you when you go out there and you watch a wrestling match 98 percent of the time the wrestlers involved only have planned all right here's how we're starting here's where we're ending and we have to hit these three things in the middle or something like that. But they're good at, like, taking care of each other in the physical sense. Oh, like, yeah. It requires wow, more it's trust. it's like dance. It's, exactly. It is a ballet. It is an opera and a ballet and a sport That's all so rolled into beautiful. one. That's um, Yeah, it's an opera, a ballet, and a sport uh, that originated with carnies and came from a history of ripping people off. It's a, it's a mm -hmm. really fascinating mm -hmm. industry. And especially the way it's evolved from lying about whether or not it's real to 
okay, where are we now? And that's where it gets really postmodern. So we can, if you want to jump into that, we can. I was going to ask too. So you you start your paper talking about the fact that there was a, a very long period of time in which the WWE hid the fact that it was scripted. Around what like year did it did did it start shifting? Okay, so the internet age is really what first started making this happen. Um, okay. So mid to late nineties. Okay, so brief wrestling history. WWE is not the only game in town. Uh, there, wrestling used to be in different territories. You would have Mid-South wrestling or Ohio Valley wrestling, and you would have these different regions where like, everyone would have their own stars, their own champions, and sometimes you would have kind of cross-promotion, but you, you had your own promotions, your own territories. Uh, but then in around like the, the, the 70s and 80s, Vince McMahon Sr., the current Vince McMahon is the uh, CEO of WWE, his father uh, kind of founded World Wrestling Federation, the WWF, and they were kind of the first national wrestling company. They got TV okay. deals. They started WrestleMania. Around what year are we looking at? We're looking at the 80s. Hulk Hogan okay. was like the first, got it, got not it, the got first it, big it. name. but And again, I am really kind of just watering down wrestling history. There is so much that happened between, we're in territories, dude, WWF is nationally known. But that's kind of the A to, A to C where we're getting. We uh, It becomes broadly known. And they're pretty much the only national wrestling federation in town for a while and then in the 90s uh ted turner uh being the ted turner that he is with his network so ted turner is uh head of you know turner network television turner field in atlanta um tbs tnt all turner networks uh on tnt they started a uh a wrestling promotion called World Championship Wrestling, WCW, headed by a guy by the name of Eric Bischoff. And Eric Bischoff was like, fuck it, we're going to take WWE down by doing what they refuse to do, and that is being edgy, being new, and getting with the times. By this point, Vince McMahon's father is no longer in charge. Um, It's still WWF. Eventually, they transitioned to WWE, from World Wrestling Federation to World Wrestling Entertainment, which is a very, you know, symbolic gesture of we are not a sport. We are now an entertainment. We are sports entertainment. But this only happened at the behest of the World Wildlife Foundation uh, suing them. (laughs) I also like that you say that um, specifically that they don't call them uh wrestlers they call them wwe superstars or sports entertainers everything in wwe comes from branding first uh Mm. this has been a thing that's happened over time in the 90s this was not as big of a thing so let's shoot back there for a second on the timeline (laughs) um i'm really jumping around right now so try to follow along listener i'm I'm following i I promise uh, it gets to an exciting conclusion um (laughs) wcw was the edgy the cool one for the teens. And then Vince McMahon decided finally, okay, we have to do something. Vince McMahon is notorious for being set in his ways. He has a specific view of the industry because he grew up in it. He has a specific idea of the way things have to be to be successful. And it kind of turned his world upside down when WWF was no longer the number one wrestling company. They had what was called the Monday Night War because WCW decided, all right, we're going to put our program right up against Monday Night Raw. And what we're going to do is we're going to air our program live. And WWF was not live at the time. So WCW was recording live. And for a while, let's tie it all together. They filmed their and taped their episodes at Disney MGM Studios in Orlando, (laughs) Florida. Um, One of my favorite fun facts. But Yeah, so that kind of happened, and this started what was known in WWF as the Attitude Era. Um, Okay. And what that was, was they got edgy. They said bad words. They they, they brought in the scantily clad women. They had, you know, Ah. bra and panty matches. They objectified people. They, uh, they had Stone Cold Steve Austin coming out every night, give me a hell yeah, flipping the middle finger and punching his boss in the face. Like, he, it became... This war, the Monday Night War, there was a time when WWF sent wrestlers to, like, ride a literal, like, tank into the parking lot of a WCW event. Uh, one of the WWF wrestlers uh, left WWF with the championship title and went to WCW and threw it in the trash on live TV. It was wild. It was crazy. You never knew what was going to happen. And wrestling was never more popular than it was in that era. 
And then oh, eventually, eventually WCW flew way too close to the sun. They did a bunch of stupid shit, like really dumb, stupid shit, like making like, uh, like making actor David Arquette their champion for two weeks. Um, <laughs> supposedly, this, according to many, killed the business. Um, there's actually a fascinating Hulu documentary that is like, I wouldn't say it's good, but it's fascinating if you're interested in this kind of thing. Because it's like part What's real. It called? It's called You Cannot Kill David Arquette. It came out last year. Because David <laughs> Arquette, this sent him into a spiral because oh, he loved wow. the industry and now everyone hated him. And it was just something he really liked. And the writers were like, we'll put the belt on you. Yeah, whatever. Who cares? But like for him, after he got into wrestling, no one wanted to hire him for anything anymore in Hollywood. So he didn't get acting jobs. No one accepted him in the wrestling industry, wow. so everyone just hated him. He became, you know, like a raging alcoholic, you know, and had addiction problems, and wow, yeah, you know, he divorced Courtney Cox. <laughs> like these things, like happened, and then this documentary kind of tracks him getting back into wrestling, and he actually in 2019 had a pretty substantial run with a couple different independent promotions around the country. And was ranked one of the top 500 wrestlers in the country by Pro Wrestling Illustrated. So wow. this documentary kind of follows that, but it's like part real and part like in the character that David Arquette was doing, which I found very jarring and weird. But uh, yeah, so hmm. that's kind of how that happened. But WW WCW flew too close to the sun and WWF ended up buying them. Vince McMahon shelled out the money to buy them. And this is kind of the first really postmodern thing that I can track in wrestling because they would like reference each other. They would spoil each other's matches on air if they were pre-taped. Like they, they were just doing, you know, petty shit. Mm -hmm. But this moment, Vince McMahon bought WCW, but the way they played it out on television was that his son, Shane McMahon, bought WCW and that all the WCW wrestlers invaded WWF. So really, they were just, you know, WWF contractors at the time. But on as it was playing out, no, they're WCW wrestlers coming in. Oh, and whoever okay. wins that show is the one that's going to continue. It's the end of the Monday Night War. So wow. this is the first case, really, of accepting that there are other things going on outside of the simulated reality that we've created and deciding, screw it, we're going to tie it into our program. Right, right. Um, I think a, a really good example that you talk about is, uh, let me pull up the, the quote of it. Um, uh, wherever it is. When, when, uh, the people, there was the cheating, um, the cheating and, and then that played into the oh, actual storyline yes. too. Oh, God, yes. So this was, uh, 2005 or 2006, uh, okay, it's context. There is, uh, there was a female wrestler at the time by the name of Lita. Her real name's Amy, but her character is called Lita, who was and dating. And at this time, we knew that things were false. Yes, it is relatively common knowledge. Like, they are not acknowledging it on television, there are not, you don't have, you know, wrestlers going out on TV and talking about things outside of character or on public social media isn't really that big of a thing yet. So you don't have that. But people know like, okay, WWE is at this point, they're WWE. They're a scripted program. They are sports entertainment. They are, uh, they are, they are, you know, entertainers first. Um, mm -hmm. They're an entertainment company, a publicly traded entertainment company. Right. Um, so... But there is still a sect of people, namely children, and I, I hate to generalize, but um, many fans who just don't get it, it doesn't click for them, or they, they can't accept it. There might be, you know, some uh, some mental uh, issues that they're dealing with. It's a, it's a very legitimate thing that's happened where, like, people can't separate. With WWE specifically. With, specifically with wrestling, and you see a lot of those people because it creates a simulated reality, and especially now because it... Um, they have such good fan interaction now because of social media. There have been a lot of cases recently in which fans who kind of had some some kind of cognitive uh, setbacks uh, and co uh, cognitive... Um, that's the word I'm looking for. Um, I don't want to say mental dissonance? issues. Yeah, not dissonance, but b people who, who can't separate the, the fake from the real. Um, sure. There was a case last year, actually, where uh, a stalker broke into one of the wrestlers' houses and uh tried to kill her kill her like literally well, like that that's yeah. also with a lot of different forms of media but i can understand where with wwe specifically the way that it ties in reality exactly more difficult yeah. yeah and and yeah like they found like zip ties on the kid and he had been stalking her for months online they found oh, dms gosh. it was 
wild, wild stuff. And they had to end. They had to then alter the show because of it, because she had to leave to go deal with all the court proceedings. Oh, this is a, a, a funny quick question. Um, right now, like in 2020, do uh, the wrestlers or do the entertain, do the superstars and the actors have two different social media profiles? Okay, so well, we're going to circle back to the cheating scandal in 2005, but right yes, now... Yes, because I do want to know about that. So, there is a big thing happening right now with WWE where Vince McMahon has now said, you cannot have outside... You cannot use your character names uh, that WWE owns on Twitch, Cameo, or other sites that you're going to okay. profit off of. This is very new. This is a thing that many people are chalking up to Vince McMahon seeing an opportunity to profit and not wanting anyone else to get that profit. Yeah, I bet wrestlers could make a lot of money on Cameo. That makes sense to so me. So they do. Uh, I've received a few, but um, <laughs> they they can still do it, but they can't use their ring name. They have to use their real name. But this creates an issue when their ring name is their real name or they've gone by their ring name for so long. There's, For instance, there's a man by the name of Xavier Woods who has a very popular gaming YouTube channel that about a year and a half to two years ago, he finally just ended up partnering with WWE on it, and they kind of cross-promote now because, like, all the wrestlers would go on it and they would have tournaments and stuff, and he now hosts a show on G4 under the name Xavier Woods, even though his real name is Austin Creed, because... Oh, and now he can't use it anymore because WWE owns owns the but the they're name. But they're letting him because he is cross-promoting with them, and it's serving as so a, it's a profit, profit line for them. Right. Sure. But there are plenty of... There's actually a wrestler who they have not confirmed that this is why she was fired, but she was then at that point making more off of her Twitch streams than, than she was wrestling. Uh, by the Her name's Selena Vega. Uh, go check her out, support her. I, I don't think she's using her real name. I think her real name is... Oh, God, I don't even know. That's so bad. I'm an awful fan. Um, but, yeah, you should go support these people. Selena yeah. Vega. Zelina. Z-E-L-I-N-A. Oh. Um, Z-E-L-I-N-A. Zelina Vega, real name. John, you're going to have a fun time editing this hodgepodge together. No, no. Actually, I, I like... I, I, most most people that have been listened really enjoy the way that the thought process goes. Most of the time, we do very minimal editing. So cool. Uh, Thea Megan Trinidad. Just in case yes. with this with this bullshit that uh, they can't use their uh, uh, stage names, I guess anymore. <laughs> their superstar. Yeah. Names. So she was she was fired. She was let go from WWE wow. a couple months ago. Not they have not said because of this, but she was one of the most vocal in saying this is bullshit. The main reason people think it's bullshit is because. WWE does not consider them employees. They do not receive benefits. They do not receive full-time pay. They are independent contractors paid per appearance. And their contract stipulates how many appearances they make over a certain amount of time or a certain it's amount like of years. like they're acting agents. Literally. But yeah. WWE is now, the, the big controversy is, does WWE have the right to stipulate these things that a normal company has every right to stipulate if they don't actually have any employees? Um, and it's, it's a big debate because yeah, who, who owns it? You do acknowledge when you sign a contract that WWE will own XYZ of your likeness. Another example, a guy by the name of Cody Rhodes has a long history of his family as wrestlers. His father, Dusty Rhodes, the American dream has been around since, you know, the fifties and sixties, uh, maybe not the fifties, probably sixties and seventies. Uh, he was, you know, not happy with how he was being treated in WWE. So when his contract expired, he left and started a brand new company called All Elite Wrestling, which now has a weekly television show and is oh, starting wow. to compete with WWE as far as ratings go. And it's the first time we've seen that since WCW. But the thing with Cody is his name was Cody Rhodes. Well, Cody Runnels, because Dusty Rhodes' real name was Dustin Runnels. But he'd gone by Cody Rhodes for his whole life because his dad's name and yeah, persona yeah. was Dusty Rhodes. When he left, WWE owned the name Cody Rhodes. So he couldn't use it. He was just Cody. And then, oh, wow. and then a couple months huh. ago, I truly do not know how this was resolved, but he was allowed to start going by Cody Rhodes again. So I don't know whether he like called in a favor and was just like, someone fucking cut the bullshit or he, or he like paid, paid him some money. I don't know. But he is now fully Cody Rhodes again. Uh, yeah, so I, I let's let's circle back to the cheating scandal too because yes. I want to get back a little bit into this. I still think that this absolutely has commentary on so on uh, postmodernism, right? But I do want to tie tie all that in, right? So so what happened in two thousand five was the character Lita 
um, was in real life was dating Matt Hardy, who was that is both his real name and his character name. Matt Hardy and Lita were mm-hmm. dating, and Lita cheated on Matt Hardy with a guy by the name of Adam Copeland. Edge is his, his ring name, um, and this obviously uh, created some issues. Um, Matt <laughs> didn't like this. Matt kind of had a, a breakdown, understandably so, and left the company for a while. Uh, but then when he came back, they put, this was like very public knowledge. This is like a public scandal. Everyone kind of knew this is why this happened. But when Matt Hardy came back after a little while, they put him in a series of matches with Edge about Lita. And like, it was like. Right. And it's the classic dialogue real. beforehand. Yeah. Like, wow. I ha- Yeah. I find that totally fascinating because at this time, it's almost like. I'm thinking, like, uh, you said in the 90s, it was sort of less public knowledge, less acknowledged that it wasn't real. With each passing Um, year, the fans get smarter and smarter. Uh, Smarter and smarter in the sense of they become more aware of the reality of how things work. Because as time goes on, more and more wrestlers from the olden days accept that this is where the industry is going and there's money to be made doing podcasts, talking about these stories. Mm. For instance, The Undertaker is kind of one of the more ubiquitous names. I feel like most people, you say The Undertaker, they can picture, you know, black hat, eyes rolled back of his head. Um, yeah. The Undertaker was notorious and famous for never, ever breaking character. Ever. Really? Ever, ever, ever. He would go, if they, there was a couple times where they sent him on talk shows, he was The Undertaker on talk shows. Hmm. He was The Undertaker on, on, uh, David Letterman. He was the undertaker on whatever talk show they put him on. And even in the modern day, he still never broke character, didn't have social media. He he was the undertaker. And then pretty recently it started popping up. Oh, Mark Calloway, the undertaker. He's going on Stone Cold Steve Austin's podcast to talk shit about the new guys and how soft they are. Uh, <laughs> he's, a, he's a fucking Blue Lives Matter trumper. He, it's... Oh, yeah, I didn't know yeah, that. It's a, it's, it's a, he's a, got some problems. Um, but <laughs> he's a thorn in our side. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was going to watch the documentary they made about his, uh, they called, it was a very supposedly good documentary on WWE Network called The Last Ride, The Undertaker's Journey for One More Match. Uh, but the first preview I saw, he was wearing the uh, thin blue line shirt. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to pass on this one. You know what? That's okay. I don't have to engage with this. Yeah, but this also is another element of, okay, can we separate how shitty some of these people are as we learn more about them and just appreciate what they're doing on screen? Like, can we separate the fact that they're all posting on Instagram since they live in Florida and there's no rules in Florida and they're doing all their production out of Florida right now? Can we separate the fact that they all were just out at a bar partying last night and then tonight they're on TV six feet away from 75-year-old Ric Flair? Like, can we do this? I don't know. Um... Yeah, it's, it's it a weird thing. It does make me curious about, um, because the paper itself, what was the title of the paper specifically? So it is called Simulated Smackdown, an analysis of WWE programming through a postmodern lens. Yeah, Simulated Smackdown. That is so delicious. When you came up with that title, were you like, yeah, this is good? No, <laughs> no. I I love clever titles. It's one of my favorite things about writing. But uh-huh. this one, I like... I thought it sounded dumb, honestly, so I'm glad you said what? it sounded good. Because I wanted it to call it uh, WWE, colon, a postmodern smackdown. But I I didn't think that was good enough for, like, the the thesis I was trying to make. So I just uh-huh. I just had to make it as blunt as possible, and no, I was like, no. Nah. I think simulated smackdown is great. But um, cool. Thanks. I appreciate that. You're welcome. What was I going to say? Um, I, I just wanted to mention also that, like, uh, WWE is super popular still. Like, I mean... In, in that, um, I'm scrolling through Twitter, and my Twitter is, like, art fucks. And I still saw this headline about about um, Gabby Tuft. Yes. Who came out as trans this week, which is super, super cool. Yes. Uh, it is, to my knowledge, the uh, first person in the professional wrestling industry to undergo a transition um, and, and be public about it. And mm. I think that is just so incredible because... Literally, this was only, I think, maybe three or four years ago, we had the first openly gay professional wrestler in WWE. Hmm. And. Wow. Yeah. And that was maybe four years ago. And I'm sure God knows how many there were before then. But that's the first one that ever, you know, was able to be out. And it's it's really incredible how times have changed because, <laughs> get back on The Undertaker being a kind of a piece of shit. Um, mm. 
he recently made some comments on a podcast about how, oh, the new product is soft. Uh, everyone, no one, it's not as tough as it used to be. Everyone's just about flippy shit and all this bullshit. Uh, yeah. yeah, because times have changed, sensibilities have changed, and this idea that being big, strong, and manly is the only way to be successful and loved is no longer the way to, to be. And I think some people in the company and the industry need to get on board with that a little bit more in order for everyone Vince to truly thrive. Okay, so I would love to work for this company one day, so I'm not going to say anything outwardly terrible, but there is... Uh, there are stories about Vince McMahon and how he has a certain type that he likes to push, as they say in the industry. You get a push, you get, you know, the spotlight. Right. Uh, and he likes the big guy, supposedly. He likes, you know, six and a half feet tall, buff, strong, good look. Uh, and that, because that can be either someone that kids look up to and want to root for or someone that kids are afraid of and want to boo. Um, right. And, he, and for years, that's who your champions were. You look at guys like Hulk Hogan. You look at guys like John Cena. You look at guys like Batista, uh, The Rock, Stone Cold Steve Austin. You think manly men. Um, and then something happened. I talk about this in the paper a lot. Around 2013, 2014, I want to say it was. Uh, a guy by the name of Daniel Bryan came. Well, he'd been in there for a couple right. years now. Came to WWE. And he's, you know, this five foot two, 180 pound vegan with a scraggly beard that fans just yeah. love because he is so damn talented. He's scrappy, he's athletic, and when they say on the mic, when you hand him a microphone and he's got to talk and cut a promo, he's so genuine and emotional and real because they're, the fans cheering on him, cheering him on, are like him. So they, they mm. get behind him. But... They just ran this whole storyline about how he's never going to be good enough because he's a B-plus player. And, like, they had the, 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 the authority figures on air would come out every every week and be like, they would just shit all over and be like, you're small. You'll never be good enough. No one wants to see you. We got to do what's best for business. And this was a very reflexive thing of this very real sensibility in the industry of who the champion should be, who should represent mm -hmm. your company, who is a successful professional wrestler. And eventually it all culminated in him winning the championship at WrestleMania. And it was one of the biggest moments in wrestling history. Uh, it was incredible to watch. Um, yeah, yeah, I like that you talk about the fact that um, in most fiction, like fucking Game of Thrones, whatever, like the writers couldn't give a shit what the audience wants. Um, but it's like... In, at times, hopefully, um, WWE has been reflective of what the audience wants. Like, it seemed like at first that, that it, they had no intention of making this guy um, win anything. And then oh, yeah. the, the fans made it so. And in that way, changed the medium a little bit. Oh, changed the way that... They changed the industry. They, and, they and hijacked the show. And made it reflect what they want. Made it reflect a changing idea of masculinity. Yeah, so they, they would hijack shows. They would start chanting his name in the middle of matches that he had nothing to do with. And wow. it got to a point where the company literally could not ignore it because everyone else in the company was saying, you have to fucking do something about this because we're out there busting our asses, literally, and all they want to do is fucking see this guy. And mm -hmm. eventually they had to, you know, change the plan, which would could never happen in any other entertainment industry. Maybe soap operas and, and like, some sitcoms that are produced kind of week to week. You can, like, yeah, read a reaction. Yeah, but the audience being literally a part of it, that makes sense. Exactly. Well, let's yeah, actually, let's yeah. kind of circle back to what I kind of think the three big tenets of postmodernism are. Yeah, so yeah. everything I've said seems relevant and not like I'm just spouting out facts about wrestling. So they're the three big tenets <laughs> of postmodernism that I took away from the class and that I look at through a postmodern lens. Reflexivity. So it's where your understanding derives from the recognition of other references. So it is reflexive. It can be reflexive of something else. So you can be like The Simpsons, where you are being reflexive of other sitcoms. And having an understanding of those sitcom tropes makes The Simpsons or Family Guy better. Okay, sure thing. And it's also, um, like, it, what is it called? Um, I wrote this down. When it's... Um it's not a parody of it. It's with respect right. and love. Oh, pastiche. Yes, pastiche and parody are two very different things. It is a pastiche. And this is where I wanted to talk about WandaVision very briefly. No spoilers, I promise. I swear to God. Um, <laughs> WandaVision is both self-reflexive and reflexive of other sitcoms. It is self-reflexive uh -huh. in the sense that it is part of a broader media landscape, a broader franchise that sets the base knowledge level 
for understanding and appreciating the show. But you derive some more pleasure, more enjoyment, more understanding from an un- from having a base knowledge of these other sitcoms that it's referencing. The Andy Griffith Show, the Dick Van Dyke Show, and as it goes on and on, different sitcoms. But that's kind of where that first tenet, that reflexivity of postmodernism sure. comes into play, which which is, again, just kind of these referencing, not parodying, but embodying the style of another thing. And that's something that the WandaVision creators talked about. I'll actually send you a link later. There's a fascinating uh, podcast yeah. where they talk about the first three episodes with the writer because uh, head writer Jack Schaefer, very good, highly recommend. Um, <laughs> she talks about how they very specifically did not want to parody these other things because that would no. overshadow what they were trying to do. But they were emulating the style to evoke those emotions. Right. I was going to say it's like you're you're playing with the, the American psyche. Yes. And American familiarity. Exactly. And that's kind of the base level. That's the easiest part of postmodernism to understand. It gets a little weirder when you get down into intertextuality. Um, okay. So you have things like illusion quotation and this is where parody comes in. So this is when you're watching Captain America Civil War and Spider-Man goes, you guys remember that really old movie Empire Strikes Back? They'll explain it and like they'll do the thing and you can still appreciate the movie if you don't know what that is. But if you do know what the Empire Strikes Back is, you say, oh, I appreciate this moment a little bit more now. Things like that okay. fall into intertextuality. Things like scary movie. Um, okay. And they also okay. have a lot of TV commercials and ads where you're like, other leading brands, blah, 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 and they're referencing other commercials or other products, those are intertextual. Those are inherently postmodern. So is that the second the second That's tier? That's the second tier. The third one is my personal favorite and the part I find most fascinating, which is paratextuality. So you have intertextuality and paratextuality. And a paratext, okay. an orienting paratext, is uh, some sort of secondary text, not a literal text necessarily, but usually, uh, a secondary text or medium that allows the viewer to interact with the media that they are interacting with. Um, okay. It helps them get a better understanding and orient themselves with it further. The first big example of this that we learned about, and it's something that I don't know much about because I never watched the show, but apparently when Lost was first airing, it was kind of the advent of social media. You're like mid-2000s. And there was the, the wiki for Lost started having all the info that you needed. Okay, I missed this. What is that thing? Is that a reference to this? Blah, 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 blah. And this was the kind of the first case of online message boards really having a community for fans of a show talking about theories, doing all this fun stuff. Okay. Um, so things like message boards, wikis, podcasts, and social media are all fall into this paratextuality. So if you go on Reddit to talk about the latest episode, oh, excuse me. If you go on Reddit to talk about the latest episode of The Mandalorian, you're engaging in a paratextual conversation because you're now gaining some insight into the show and engaging with the show in a different way that has nothing okay. to do with how the creators intended. Okay, so why are these three things postmodernists? Do, do they, they're required for something to be considered that way? So at some level, I think one of these things has to be present for something to be considered postmodern. But um, okay. I just want to kind of pull a, a quote or a paraphrase from uh, an article that we read in that class that I just reread today. Uh, that television is a simulation divorced from reality, no longer a medium of representation, but instead an independently existing virtual world. So that is what television is. When I'm you're, not understanding. So in, in the context of postmodernism, te- television can be, I'm sitting here watching Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad okay. is making no effort to pull me into the show in a way that is anything beyond a viewer. Okay. Breaking Bad isn't asking me to put myself in the shoes of Walter White. Breaking Bad isn't asking me to forget that the world around me exists for a moment and accept their reality. Okay. And again, this is just my interpretation and my understanding of this. There are many different sure, theories sure, sure. of postmodernism, no, okay. but my focus on it then you have something like something like wandavision wanda they'll make eye contact with you suddenly (laughs) wandavision (laughs) in its inherent concept is asking you to have an understanding of several different things prior to getting involved and separating yourselves from your reality and immersing yourself in their reality to the point where you're now thinking more about how does this play into that world then how does okay. this affect my world? 
Okay. Okay. They're asking you to have a more involved relationship. Yes. With the story that they're telling. Yeah. yeah. My my theory on postmodernism and what makes WWE so postmodern is the involvement of the audience. Um, not just the live audience at a show or at a recording, but the audience at home and how they're being asked to interact with the program. Um, and the wrestlers yeah. are making eye contact with the camera, right? Yeah. When they're speaking. For the most okay, part. Okay, in that yeah. way, they're talking to you on the couch. Exactly. And especially in pandemic times, even more so. Oh. What they've done now is, for a while, they were just doing shows with empty arenas, which was just weird, but you got used to it. But after a while, they moved into an arena in Orlando and brought in thousands of LED screens and now have thousands of fans on LED screens watching oh. from a home on the live broadcast. So they have now created another layer of being there. And what is even more fascinating, and I, there was no way I could have talked about this in a paper in 2016, but they're, they are directed. The audience is being directed. What? Yes. So you log into this thing and you're, you're setting up your screen. They're, they're saying, you can wear this. You can't wear this. Please, um, please make sure you stay this much in your frame. Don't show this, this, or this. Uh, and then sometimes they'll put up directions that say clap. Sometimes they'll put up directions that say boo, thumbs down. Or sometimes they'll put up directions that say, all right, now we're going to count down from five as the timer counts down. And they're what directing the, the audience. That's crazy. And they are piping do they in do that at, crowd noise. in person? No, 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 no. They will sometimes ah. pipe in crowd noise just to kind of supplement. It's a TV production. I get that. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, they they now have full control over what an audience thinks, quote unquote, because they can tell all their fans, all right, boo. And if the fans don't start booing or going thumbs down, they have full rights to boot them at any time and replace them with someone else waiting in a queue. And they're piping in boos from the sound system in the arena. Wow. It's wild. It's just yeah, so that, crazy. That feels even more like like a weird... Apocalyptic? Uh, yeah. Apocalyptic <laughs> theater. Um, what was I going to say? So I honestly, when I, I, I sat down, I was like, oh, yeah, WWE postmodernism. And then I was like, wait, what the hell is postmodernism? Like, yeah. wait a minute. Postmodernism, so I went on, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. I was just going to say I went on on uh, Wikipedia, and I thought that it was kind of a nice definition. We're also headed toward about an hour, so we are going to kind of wrap up. So think about some closing thoughts as I sure. read about postmodernism. Okay, postmodernism is generally defined as an attitude of skepticism, irony, or rejection toward uh, what it describes as the grand narratives and ideology. Wait, great, great pronunciation. Grand narratives and ideologies associated with modernism, often criticizing enlightenment rationality and focusing on the role of ideology in maintaining political or economic powder, power. So it's like trying to go against the maintaining of what it has been, yes. I guess. So postmodern thinkers frequently describe knowledge claims and value systems as contingent or socially conditioned, framing them as products of political, historical, or cultural discourses and hierarchies. Common targets of postmodern criticism include universalist ideas of objective reality, morality, truth, human nature, reason, science, language, and social progress. Accordingly, postmodern thought is broadly characterized by tendencies to self-consciousness, self-referentiality, epis... Nope. Epistemological and moral re relativism, pluralism, and irreverence. Um, it, w it gained popularity in the 80s and 90s and has been adopted in a whole bunch of different shit. Um, so, okay, for me, when I read that, I'm like, okay, self-referential is the big word that I pick out. Self-referential in, in the attempt to um, take a look at and um, take a... Uh, yeah, I, sure, take a look at. That's the most basic way I could say it. Take a look at, um, like, value systems and discourses and hierarchies that have been a norm. So to, to ask yourself to, to engage with a story is, in a way, looking at yourself, looking at the story, and looking at the norms around it. And I, I, that's how I understood postmodernism. Yes. Um, what you read, what I wrote in my paper, is a bunch of academic bullshit. And the, yeah, there were so many words and I couldn't pronounce any the, of them. And I went to a pretty good school. Yeah, the easiest <laughs> way, the easiest way to break it down, I think, for the layman, is if you look at something and say, "Hmm, that's meta," it's probably considered postmodern. Mm -hmm. But this brings up a whole new debate of when everything is postmodern, nothing is postmodern, and it creates a paradox. Right, and it seems like <clears throat> almost everything is self-referential nowadays. It does, which is why it's so hard to find something that I wouldn't consider postmodern. 
on some level. So now okay. my criteria, even since I wrote this paper, my criteria to classify something as postmodern has evolved to be a lot more kind of strict because everything is postmodern now. My favorite example of postmodernism, if you want a very accessible example that is also fun to watch, community. Community is okay, built on postmodernism because it I love community. It it's references like one of my the medium of television. It plays okay. with the medium. And it acknowledges what it's doing wholeheartedly. Oh, sure. Okay. Um, and it, same thing with Rick and Morty. Dan Harmon is all about that. Um, but sure. postmodernism is best exemplified in community. So I highly recommend checking that out if you're interested in postmodernism. My, if you want to talk about final thoughts, my final thought on what yeah. makes WWE the most pristine example of postmodernism. Cool. Is that they police their own paratexts they created the wwe network at one point okay that produced documentaries behind the scenes it was the first time you're ever really getting all these true behind the scenes moments of like what happened the day of wrestlemania behind the curtain before daniel bryan went out and won those championships what was his day like um however they are still produced by wwe so they have podcasts that they produce that go behind the scenes. They have television shows that go behind the scenes, but you're still only seeing what they want you to see. Oh, And wow. it's fascinating to me. Um, but still, still, after all these years, people still can't divorce the reality from the simulation that they're watching. And the best example of that is, and I, I think you made a note of this, when Donald Trump showed up in WWE... Oh my God, we didn't even talk about <clears throat> yeah, it. So wow. Donald Trump and Vince McMahon go way back. Two rich old white dudes, why not? Vince McMahon's wife, <laughs> Linda McMahon, was Trump's administrator for the Small Business Administration from 2016 to 2019. That is I how tight. I have no idea. That is how tight these two are. Linda McMahon ran for Senate twice, lost both times. Can't imagine why. And a lot of the things that her, <laughs> her opponent used was, in my opinion, I think unfair representation of the wrestling industry and her involvement in it as slander and smear material um mm. do i think she should have won hell no do i think that was the way to do it no i think her her, her qualifications no spoke for no. themselves but sure. um they they ran an angle uh an angle is a story they ran an angle uh i don't know what year it was mid 2000s uh maybe 2006 2007 where Donald Trump came in. It was the Battle of the Billionaires. Him and Vince McMahon were feuding. So they had two wrestlers represent them in the ring. And, like, Donald Trump got involved. Stone Cold Steve Austin hit him with the Stone Cold Stunner. That wasn't the big deal. A couple years later, they did an angle where Donald Trump, quote-unquote, bought Monday Night Raw, which was WWE's flagship program, and he was going to air the next episode commercial-free. Uh, mm. WWE stock plummeted. Because mm -hmm. people couldn't separate that this was a storyline they were running and yeah. not a real thing that happened. Um, and a similar thing happened, again, questionable idea here, Vince, but they ran a story where his limousine blew up with him inside of it and he was dead. Um, he was very much alive, very much alive. Oh my God. But again, stock plummeted, so they had to backtrack on this story. Uh, and I just think that having a reality that is so manufactured down to the point where you are now trying to police the lives of your performers outside mm -hmm. of work without giving them the benefits that typically come with someone who is signing those rights away. Again, like they, this is not like an actor signing on for a movie where you're getting, you know, you're insured by your union, you're doing all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. And they say, all right, we need you to shave your head again for reshoots. Like, okay, that's yeah. in my contract. I have to do that. It's like they're now changing the rules as time changes, but not changing them in a fair way. And I think that that is all plays into the postmodernism of it where, okay, the performers sure. are now self-aware because the performers have two different personas. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they are just their own lives turned up to 11. But you also run into issues where like Zelina Vega, who was fired, her husband still works for WWE. Apparently oh. they haven't put him on TV in months. Wow. Yeah, so it's like, okay, are they punishing him? Do they just not have plans? Are they just waiting out his contract? And this whole other level now, if there's another company that they can go to if they leave WWE, that wasn't the, a case for a very long time. Yeah. And now 
now that's an option for them. So everything about WWE is meta now. Because we have mm. we have now gone from we had the attitude era, we had the ruthless aggression era, which was the TV PG kind of they, they went from like TV fourteen to TV PG after a little while, the PG era. And then the reality era. And the reality era is when they started just outwardly using each other's real names on television as an insult and things like that. Okay. Um, it all started kind of with a guy named CM Punk. Highly, he did a promo called The Pipe Bomb where he talked shit about the company and then they cut off his mic and they cut the feed. And to this day, no one knows if that was planned and he was told to, he could say that or if he just did it and went, you know... Ooh, went, but that's even yeah, more fun rogue. that you don't know. Exactly. And it's that blurring of the line. Even when we know it's fake, it's the blurring mm-hmm. of the line that right. that makes it postmodern. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a pretty good finisher. I agree. That's my finishing move. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming, Nick. Thank you for having me. It was really great uh, to It was talk really about a delight this. to, uh, to one, research it, and two, to read your paper. Um, do you have anything else to plug? Um I mean, you, you're working on your podcast. Do you have any other things to plug before? Yeah. Uh, so the C-Ticket podcast, follow us at C-Ticket pod on Twitter. Shoot us an email, cticketpod at gmail.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all those fun places. Uh, and also check out The Collective Brain on YouTube. Collective Brain is uh, the uh, film production company that my friends and I started in college, and we post short films there. Uh, we have three up since December, three new ones, uh, including my friend Ryan just released a film called Day Three. Uh, that I highly recommend everyone go check out. And we got some other fun stuff coming up on there soon, I hope. So Yay! stay tuned there. But yeah, well, uh, thank you for thank you for giving me a, a platform to ramble about this stuff. I find it fascinating and no one ever wants to hear it. So I hope, no, I hope mean, everyone the, likes one, it. One, that's what this podcast is for. And two, there's nothing I love more than people rambling about something that they know a fuck ton about. Like, as you were talking, I was like, he knows all of these names. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you made a note in your email, actually, that was like, how how did you research this? The answer is I didn't. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I did not have to do any research for this paper other than, uh, fine, I guess I'll find an article that has a quote or something that I can use because About I had to. Wrestling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but literally every reference in this paper just came from, okay, I know this thing already. This is actually the second paper I ever wrote about wrestling. My thesis paper in high school was also about the downfall of WCW and the how con- there's a book called Controversy Creates Cash, which was Eric Bischoff's motto about how if you're just controversial, people will want to watch, even if it sucks. And I'm like, all right. You could. You could if you <clears throat> wanted to make a, a whole podcast that's just WWE stuff. I've thought about it, but I also think, again, this is another thing like with, with my podcast. There are podcasts already that do that. I'm not yeah, another white dude that. with that adding his voice to the mix <laughs> is not what people need. So what I've always wanted to do, I don't know, we'll use this. Hey, listener, would you listen to a podcast where I make someone who doesn't watch wrestling watch wrestling? I personally, one, would listen to that and two, would want to be the person that does it. I think you should make theater people watch wrestling. Yes. Like, I think that would be total gold. Yeah, we'll spitball some uh, some podcast names when we get off the call. <laughs> okay, that sounds great. All right, I'll talk to you. Uh, we'll 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 sign off and then we'll keep. All going. right, this is. Uh, All right, this has That's been Nick Ambrosia <laughs> and Jess Fisher. All right. All right. Bye. Bye. Best Paper Pod is supported by Hickory Playground, which was founded by Dylan Tashton, Robert Fuller, and Jordan Maycant. Our audio editor is John Morgenstern. Our cover art is made by Morgan Honeycutt, and our jingle was made by Lucky Saruti. I also want to give a big special thanks to Patrick Yeboah and Simone Elhart. Thank you so much for listening. If you've got a paper you think would be great for the show, submit it at hickoryplayground.org slash bestpaper. I can't wait to read it.